Good morning, everybody. If it is your first time here, we are very glad that you have joined us today. If you're listening online, thanks for tuning in. I've had several people say, hey, we listen to the podcast. They're working. That's great. A couple of quick little housekeeping things before we get into the message this morning. One, thank you for joining us on what is historically the worst day of the year, right? Like you woke up this morning, you lost an hour of sleep. And so thank you for waking up, having a little extra coffee. Ethan, appreciate you. Good job on that. And also, um, he's not out here right now, but last week I want to address something so people don't think I'm abusive. Um, If you were here last week, I may or may not have poured salt all over one of our students' tongues, who then went home and told everyone he was assaulted by a pastor. So, (laughs) Caleb is already on his way to terrible dad jokes. So, (laughs) there's that. We're going to continue walking through the greatest sermon, just looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, there's these little transitions that happen within it. We kind of had several weeks where he looked at the Beatitudes, the supreme blessedness. And then last week, we said, okay, now he's putting this into action with salt and light, that we've been called to action, not just to sit by, but to actually do something with it. And today, Jesus is really going to set up the next several months' worth of messages. And the way that he's going to do that is through talking through the law and scripture itself. So 2001, I'm a senior in high school, and that was kind of a pivotal year for me. February of that year, I know I just said 2001, so some people were like, oh, you're old, quiet. Um, Some people were like, oh, you're a kid. I went bald when I was 20, so give me some grace. Um, That was a pretty pivotal year, though. Had some big, big changes in my life spiritually. Like, I'd been a believer for a long time, but I really began to what I would say grow in that faith and kind of make it my own. I remember sitting down and having a really, really big conversation with God one night. Nobody else around, wasn't at a camp, wasn't at anything super emotional. I'm sitting in my bedroom and just going, okay, do I believe in God? Yes. Um, if I do, then he probably needs to be bigger than I currently have him in my world. Had him in that nice little box and take him out and look at him every now and then, put him back. And I began to grow, and the, the biggest change for me was picking up a Bible for the first time and going, I'm going to read this thing. Like, this is the primary way that God has communicated to us for thousands and thousands of years. It's an amazing book of 66 different books split into Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament was written over a period of over a thousand years. The New Testament, 50, 60 decades worth of writing. And yet they all coincide together and they tell this big, elaborate story. And for the first time in my life, I picked it up and it had done a good job of keeping dust from getting under it. And like that was, and There was one clean spot on my dresser where the Bible was. And I picked it up and I said, I'm going to read this. And I started reading. And the way that I viewed God exploded in such a healthy way that it wasn't this God that we put in the box. And I began to understand the love that he had for me. I began to understand the plan that he had for my life. And I'm telling you, to this day, it's one of my greatest passions. I love to sit down and study the Word of God and to read it. And that's why we encourage people so often, like, if this is the only time that you're being fed spiritually, hear me, you're starving. Like, it's got to be a personal thing. And this drives pretty much everything that we do at this church. Scripture is important to us. Because when we take a small view of Scripture, man, we're missing a big view of Jesus. And that's what he's going to begin to communicate to us today. And so I want to try and be clear on several things because sometimes we read certain parts of this sermon and you go, what does that mean? And that was, that was for me this week. Like I knew what it meant, but it was like, man, how do I articulate that to people? And so even usually on Thursdays by about 10 o'clock, I'm done with my message. I send it off to our media team and 
had to text everybody. I was like, going to be a bit because I'm still trying to put this together. And thankfully, uh, here we are. So let's start Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 17 to begin with. You can follow along in your Bible. We'll also have it on the screens. Verse 17 and 18 say this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, as Jesus gets into this, before we get into the really heart of this message, we've got to lay a little bit of groundwork and say, hey, here's another thing that Jesus is saying within this. And we're going to look at it in this way. If you have a high view of Jesus, you have a high view of Scripture. Because Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law or the prophets is what we call the Old Testament. Jews didn't call it the Old Testament because to them it was the only testament. So they said the law and the prophets. You had the law, the books of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch. You had the prophets and you had minor prophets, major prophets. You had books of wisdom. And the entire thing that we call the Old Testament collection is what Jesus is referring to here. And Jesus has a really high view of Scripture. And if we're not careful, something can creep in where we can claim to have a high view of Jesus. But if you have a high view of Jesus, you will also have a high view of Scripture, and it will dictate everything, how you view Scripture, because Jesus thinks it's important. But unfortunately, and this is not something new, this has been happening literally since the New Testament and early church began. Early on, you had what was known as the Gnostics. They would come in, reinterpret Scripture, and take Jesus as kind of a spirit being. You skip forward a couple decades, and you get into other heresies of people saying, hey, the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. And you can be a completely sinless person here on earth. Like all these different things of people taking Scripture and misinterpreting them. You get into the 70s and 80s, and you had a lot of liberal theology that just went all over America. And even today, like, you need to hear this. Like, I know this isn't a political statement, but there are just certain areas of America where you would go, hey, that's a more liberal area, this is a more conservative area. And so sometimes you would think, oh, from this really liberal area, you're going to get a lot of liberal theology. And look, I'm going to tell you, right here in Abilene, you've got places teaching some crazy stuff that says, hey, Scripture is not inerrant. Scripture is not perfect which flies in the face of 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. Like, he placed that into the writers' lives and directed them in exactly what they needed to say. Now, the fun thing is you still get personality. Peter writes a certain way. Paul writes a certain way. That's why the book of Hebrews, we don't really know who the author is because a lot of it sounds like Paul, but Paul writes a little different. And that's okay, so we just go, hey, we don't know who the author is, but we know it was included in Scripture. I think it was... One of his friends by chance, but that's neither here nor there. But you see that these individuals are there, but God is the one speaking it into their lives, down to the finest letter. But so many times today, you've got people that'll go, hey, man, Scripture is not completely true. And we'll just pick and choose the parts that we want. And then you can get into areas where you go, man, I, I read that in the Bible, but it, it's offensive to me, therefore I want to remove it. It's dangerous, right? Because look, Scripture is offensive just in general. It's telling people you are dead spiritually. You are rotting. We talked about that last week, that the world needs salt because it is just rotting away. And yet some people will look at Scripture and go, well, that could be offensive to this person, so let's take that out. Oh, that could be offensive to this person, so let's take that out. And it's dangerous, and we don't ever do it. 
Like, it's here, I need you to understand, we view Scripture very highly. That's one of our commitments at this church. We are committed to God's Word. If there's ever a time where I start talking about stuff and you go, that's crazy, fire me, okay? I mean that, because this drives everything. We do believe that it is the inerrant Word of God. We believe that it's profitable for correction, reproof, everything. But sometimes people will look at it and go, well, that's kind of offensive, so let's not put that in there. No, don't, don't be dangerous with that. Sometimes people go, well, I like certain parts of it. Like, I love the prophecy. I love studying through kind of all these things, and I love Daniel. And, man, I love le- reading through Revelation. And do you think the locust could be an Apache helicopter? And you get in some crazy theories and whatnot. But then they go, but I don't like all this ethical stuff. That's hard for me. We don't pick and choose the parts that we want. Some people would say, well, Scripture's just full of contradictions. Like all through the Bible, you can't really put it all together. And I would say a little bit of study into Scripture will show you maybe you just didn't understand how that was written. One of the contradictions that I've heard is literally on page 1 and 2 of the Bible. People say, well, when I read Genesis 1 and I read Genesis 2, it sounds like there's the creation of two different people. Like God made man and woman, and then God made Adam and Eve. And there's this old Jewish theory that there was this really kind of mystical, crazy woman that was born out of that. It's not contradicting itself. It's just not written how we would normally write. See, we are a Western society. Scripture is Eastern. Like when you tell a story, how do you write it? Like when you're in like first and second grade and you're learning to write paragraphs, you tell a story beginning, middle, end. That's just kind of what we do from an American society. In the Hebrew culture, it would go beginning, end, middle. And the way that they wrote it was the first writing was just kind of this big, broad brushstroke of, hey, here's the story in its grandest scope. And then in chapter 2, it goes back, and it writes it in fine print, and it gives more of the details. It's not contradicting itself. It's just people need to understand. Turns out a couple thousand years ago, they wrote differently in a culture all the way across the world than we do today. So it's not full of contradictions. It's profitable. And Jesus believed every part of it. Jesus had a really high view of Scripture, and so there are times where there's modern scholars that say, well, take the story of Jonah. That can't be true. A man cannot be swallowed by an animal and live in its belly for three days. Here's the danger in that. If you don't believe that, then you're calling Jesus a liar because Jesus believed it. In Matthew chapter 12, he starts talking about just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days. So if Jesus believes it and you don't, you show me how that works. Because I have found water and I have found oil, and they're just not compatible. If Jesus believed that a man could be inside of a fish for three days, you know what? Yes. Because in the scheme of Scripture, that's easy, right? God spoke the world into existence. A woman who had never been with a man gave birth to our Messiah. Like, a belly and a fish, man... (laughs) I've seen Pinocchio. That's easy, right? Like, that's just one of those things, like, that's low on the totem pole. Like, at one point, God stops the earth from moving. Like, the physics involved in that are crazy. But if Jesus believed in Jonah, then I'm going to go, well, it's good for me, too. That's why also in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan begins to tempt him, what does Jesus use as his weapon? Scripture. See, Satan knew Scripture as well. What's interesting is he misinterprets some of it and rewords it a little bit. Jesus kind of corrects him. And Jesus not only believed in all of Scripture, but he used it and put it into action. Jesus believed every word of it. 
That's why it says, and I love the ESV. That's typically what I teach out of. It takes more of a Greek aspect to it when it says an iota or a dot. If you've kind of got any church background, you may have heard this described as a jot or a tittle. Um, What he's talking about are literally the letters in Scripture itself. And this is kind of what they look like. So on this side, that's a jot or yoke. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew language. Little bitty, I mean, it's a comma, essentially. Like, this is where a lot of us would struggle to write it because, man, my R's look like V's, and you know you got a letter that does not look like the alphabet when you write. Now, here's the interesting, that's the smallest letter. That little point jutting out is called a tittle. It would be the equivalent of if you've typed in Times New Roman, you know it has those little edges on like an I or a T. And most of our modern fonts are just more block. They don't have those. That's a small, small change. And yet in ancient language, you take that off and you can have three different words out of that in Hebrew. That's crazy. That's where we would go, man, I'm butchering that language. So even in Greek, there's things called rough breathing marks, these little squiggles on top of a word. And depending on which way you turn it, it changes the meaning of the word. Jesus is pretty detailed here. What he's saying is every letter, every way something is pronounced in Scripture is real, and it's true. And Jesus believed it, and so I'm going to believe it. And Jesus believed it, and so when we preach and teach at this church, we are going to take a high view of Scripture. If there is something in Scripture that contradicts our society, Scripture wins. If there's something in Scripture that contradicts politics, Scripture wins. Scripture is the great authority. And so for us, getting off on a little sidetrack there, a couple things that we need to do with this today. One, Scripture needs to be our greatest authority. We take our opinions at times out. We take our politics at times out. We use it as we're commanded to use it, as a sword, not a hammer. What's interesting is even Scripture itself says, man, it will penetrate and divide. You just let Scripture be Scripture. And sometimes it may take a little bit to divide down to some really calloused, hard hearts. But I believe it can do that because uh, there's a lot of evidence of it. And there's times where you just need to let Scripture be Scripture, but it needs to be the ultimate authority. And so there's times where we go, man, I read this, and there's some things that, man, socially, could be dangerous, could be seen as hateful. We also preach it in love because we're commanded to do that, right? If you don't do it in love... You're just an obnoxious-sounding gong is how Scripture refers to you. But we teach this in love. We believe it. That's primarily why we teach the way we do here. Like, I can't avoid stuff. Like, we just walk through this line by line, and so if it's offensive, man, i got to deal with that. So next week, i got to deal with anger, which means undoubtedly something's going to come up to make me angry next week, and I'm going to have to deal with the conviction that comes from that all throughout the week. Then we're going to get into lust. Then we're going to have to talk about divorce. A couple weeks after that, i got to talk about what we give within our finances. I can't wait to get to prayer because I'm just like, yay, Jesus, thank you. Prayer is easy. We just pray. We're, all we're going to do that service is pray because I'm going to need a break. But sometimes like when we find stuff in here and go, man, there's some things I go, I just don't know if I want to talk about that. And God goes, no, you're going to because Christ believed every last word of it. So we let it be our authority. And we have got to commit to studying this. Personally, daily, definitely weekly, you've got to study this for yourself. You've got to let it consume you at times, and you've got to consume it. 
And so there's a lot of different ways. One thing that every person in here shares in common, if you are in Christ, you could know more about the Bible. And when I say everyone, that's me included. That's why my list of books <laughs> outruns the ones read versus ones I need to read. Because there's times where I look in Scripture and go, man, I need to know more about this. I've said in the past, like when it comes to end times and things like that, that's an area I need to study more because there's questions that come up. So i got a great book in my office right now called Infant Baptism and Covenant Theology. Um, most of you probably aren't going to grab that one, but you know what? It's one question came up and was like, you know what? I can educate myself on that a little bit. Every one of us can know more about the Bible. Not so we have more knowledge, but for God's glory. And so there's lots of avenues for you. Blueletterbible.org. I've mentioned that one before. If you want, write it down. You can look at all the different translations. You can go in and it will break down Greek and Hebrew in a way that's fairly understandable. There's a thing called Strong's Concordance. Every word in Greek is listed in it. And you can see, okay, when it talks about love, is it using this Greek word for love or is it using this one? Because it can kind of change some of the context of it. But you can educate yourself. In 2020, there is no reason not to study. I'll tell you that. We have way too many resources. You version of the Bible app, grab that on your phone. If you need a study Bible, grab one of those because it's just good little nuggets of, okay, what is it talking about there? And you can educate and grow within that. MacArthur's got good study ones. Matthew Henry, those are good, easy intro into it. If you're pressed for time, you got 10 minutes, go on iTunes, go on Spotify, and subscribe to Ask Pastor John. It's John Piper, and I can tell you I'm not challenging anyone's intelligence in here. I'm just saying he's smarter than all of us, all right? He's got some books that were not written for me. There was one Sunday we were in church in Oklahoma, and I found this one that I was like, I haven't read that, and I want it. And I got my phone out, and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, shh, I'm ordering a book. Because, like, pastors love to do that. It came in, and about three pages in, I went, I am not smart enough for this. <laughs> but there's a lot of other ones in his podcast. It's about 10 minutes where it's some really legit good questions, and, man, he breaks them down, uses Bible to explain all of it. There's just resource after resource after resource to grow and study in Scripture. But there's another caveat to it as well. Do more than know, do. Jesus took that scripture that he knew and he put it into application. He used it to press back against darkness when he was being tempted. He used it to lovingly and compassionately see people. So it's more than just study. We do more than just know, we do. And so, now that I've done that, what's this really about? Because Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. Already there was kind of this mentality in religious leaders that when they heard Jesus, they were like, man, this is different. This guy speaks with authority. This guy speaks as though he wrote this stuff. Um, kind of did. He was the author. And they were concerned, man, you're going to take what we hold unbelievably sacred in Jewish culture. You're going to take someone like Moses. You're going to take the prophets and you're going to discard them and come up with your own new system. And Jesus goes, hey, I want to dispel that. I want you to know I believe every last letter of this. But the big thing is, he says, I have not come to abolish them. Here's what he's talking about. But to fulfill them. The Old Testament is one big picture that mankind is in need. Because what the law and the prophets show us is we're just not good enough. And apart from Christ, no one can fulfill it. <clears throat> and yet Christ comes and he says, I have come for everything that you have read and everything that you study and everything that you know, 
I have come to fulfill that. So here's how he does that. First, Jesus fulfilled the law through perfect obedience. He fulfills the law through perfect obedience in the sense that when he came, people were asking questions, are you greater than Moses? And Jesus goes, look, I am not adding one thing to the law even though I am above it. I'm its author. I'm the one who placed those words into Moses' mouth and had him write them out. I'm the one who put prophecy into place. But Jesus didn't add anything but one. Perfect obedience. What he added to it was, I fulfilled it. So let's take the Ten Commandments, basic morality 101, that we can't make it a day without messing up. Jesus goes, I've done all of that. He's not the rich young ruler in the New Testament going, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus goes, I lack for nothing. I have followed everything in absolute accordance to God's will. And in doing that, he fulfills all of the law by being perfectly obedient. Because for us, the law shows one thing. <laughs> you can't do it. Like, you just can't. And yet Christ says, I am fulfilling this because I am obediently and perfectly following it. Jesus also fulfilled the law through prophecy. You read through the Old Testament scriptures, there's like 300 scriptures that deal with the Messiah, these prophetic things that were written sometimes thousands of years before of what the Messiah would look like. Some of them dealt with his birth, uh, things that Jesus didn't exactly have control over. None of you got to decide where you were going to be born, right? And so that's why even at Christmas we look at some of, hey, he's going to be born in the town of Bethlehem. He's going to be from the tribe of Israel. He's going to be the tribe of Jesse. He's going to have all of these things that were just outside of Christ's control. He's going to be born of a virgin, and yet he fulfills those. Some of them were his life. He'd be despised. He'd be ridiculed. And we know that Jesus dealt with that all the time from his own people. Some of them dealt with his death, the way in which he would die, that he'd be pierced for our transgressions. Read through Isaiah 53. There's some really strong language there that deal with prophecies related to Jesus. And Jesus fulfills them. And in doing so, he shows that I have fulfilled the law. Now, what's this guy's name? Peter Stoner wrote a book called Science Speaks. And a pretty smart mathematician type. He said for Jesus or any individual to fulfill 48 of those 300 prophecies, the probability of that happening, one person being able to orchestrate their life pre-birth to death, to even do 48 of those, the probability of that is 10 to the 17th power. That is a 1 with 17 zeros behind it. It is a large number. If you want to put it into some visual context, if you were to take silver dollars and you would stack them up across the greatest state in all the country, which is where we are, it would be two feet deep. Texas is a big state, y'all. That's a lot of silver dollars. But then to really drive it home, you would take one of those silver dollars, and you would put a mark on it. And then you'd take some poor volunteer and blindfold them, probably an intern because that's what interns do. And you would send that intern out and say, find it. That's the probability of Jesus fulfilling just 48 of them. And he gets them all. Like, there is no way that that is possible outside of a divine Savior. That's who Jesus is. So he fulfills it perfectly obediently. He fulfills the prophecy. And then there's a big one. Jesus fulfilled the penalty of the law on the cross. Because you can't miss that. You cannot miss this. There is a price for sin. There is a price for our failure. 
and the law and prophets would say it's death. Death of that person or the sacrifice of something innocent. Because really the Old Testament is really kind of a conditioning program for the fact that there's an equality here. Sin equals death. Therefore, you need a sacrifice. And all through the Old Testament, this is just something that was trained in people, almost like Pavlov's dogs, if you're familiar with that. Pavlov had dogs, and he knew, hey, they salivate before they eat. So he put an experiment together. Ring a bell, dog food. He did this for a while. Ring a bell, dog food. Ring a bell, dog food. One day, it came time for the real experiment. Rang the bell, no dog food. Dogs just salivating because it had been conditioned. The Old Testament conditions us to understand that sin equals death. There has to be a sacrifice there. That's why in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was there because blood had to be shed. And that's hard for us to wrap our minds around how graphic a scene that would be at a time where people would pour into Jerusalem making atonements, bulls, lambs. I know in cattle there's over 10 gallons of blood. And you imagine all of these people bringing these sacrifices. The temple would have been the unbelievable reminder just from its stench on a warm day that sin equals death. And Jesus says, look, I'm even going to fulfill that penalty because he was sinless, because he had fulfilled the prophecy. He was able to fulfill the penalty of death, and he did it on the cross. And because he was sinless, he becomes the ultimate sacrifice for us. In his obedience, in his coming, and in his death, he can say, but to fulfill them. And he does. He fulfills all of that. And he's continuing to do that. That's why it says, um, not one of the law shall pass away um, until all is accomplished. There's still things being accomplished. The cross accomplished grace and salvation for us, but one day he's going to return. He's going to set all things back as they should be. And that's when it's all accomplished. So then he kind of transitioned it to us a little bit. In verse 19, Excuse me. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's where a question kind of come up. As we read that, says, man, whoever relaxes the least of these, or one of these, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Are we called, as believers now, to live under the law? To answer that, no. Why? Because he's fulfilled it. When he says, I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them, that fulfillment changes everything for us. Because that fulfillment puts us into a new covenant. How do we know that? Because within Scripture, we're called to sacrifice. Now, God says, hey, I'm, you know, sacrifice isn't the ultimate thing. I want a clean, pure heart. But we know in the Old Testament that sacrifices were called to be made. So why are we not still doing those? Because Jesus fulfilled it and became the ultimate sacrifice. Therefore, and a lot of y'all are probably happy, we don't have a livestock yard out back. Not having to do that today because, man, in my life, I'd have taken out every feedlot in Amarillo. If some of you are from that area, you know what I'm talking about. You get there, open the door, and go... Mm, that's cow manure. Um, there's a lot of feedlots there, a lot of cattle. I'd have killed them all. And luckily, because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, that's one we're no longer, so we're not the least in the kingdom there. See, there's a number of things within the Old Testament that were given to give Israel its identity, a number of the dietary laws, a number of the customs that they did. It set them apart from the people around them. 
That's why we read certain things and go, I don't fully understand that commandment. Because there's one commandment that says, don't cook a young goat in its own mother's milk. I've studied that one. Still haven't got that figured out. Um, I like goat, but that's one people just look at and go, hey, it could have been because that milk was supposed to be nurturing to this young goat coming from its mother. But in the reality, we just don't know. But we know that that was to set them apart from the nations that were around them. Well, our identity is now found in Christ. We're not having to have it identified through the law. And so that changes some of it and sets us free. Now, we have to be careful with that, right? doesn't mean that we just relax all the Old Testament. doesn't mean that we go, oh, well, new law, new covenant, shouldn't, you know, maybe I shouldn't lie, but I'll just do it anyway. No, it's not what he's getting at. But because our identity is now in Christ, we do have a new identity. And there's some things we're thankful for, right? Bacon. Come on. That was one in the Old Testament. God said, hey, pork. That's an unclean animal. This is to set you apart from the cultures around you. Therefore, you will not eat it. Even when it came to beef, there were certain parts behind a certain part of the animal where they said, hey, we don't eat that anymore. Um, and it set them apart. But yet, we're going to see in our scripture reading today that Jesus said, hey, I just made all food clean. So praise God, because bacon is there, right? <laughs> and praise God, because there are some things that set Israel apart in the Old Testament that I personally am kind of thankful for now. You don't have to turn there, but I was just going to read a little bit of Leviticus chapter 19 because, man, Leviticus, it's riveting stuff, right? Sometimes people can take Scripture and misconstrue it a little bit. And real briefly, I want to read a verse for you. Verse 19 and verse 28, it says, You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. I've had people that have read that and said, There it is. Boom. Here's the thing, and look, this is, tattoos are kind of a personal thing, um, but I want to I teach a little bit of Bible real quick. There's a word called hermeneutics. I've mentioned it before. Big fun word, interpretation of Scripture. The first rule of hermeneutics is Scripture interprets Scripture. And so you can't take one thing and disregard literally everything around it. Because the verse before that says, you shall not round off the hair on the temples or mar the edges of your beard. I don't know if y'all see this beautiful thing up here, but come on, um, Got that one. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. Mm, my steak moves a little. And then, even verses before that, you shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. And I bet most of you sinners out there have those little plastic things on your shoes, on the laces. That's two different kinds of material. You're all sinners. What do we do with that? We understand that Leviticus 19 was speaking to the Hebrews, to the Israelite culture, mainly for the people that surrounded them. They were surrounded by a lot of dark pagan culture, particularly Egypt. So when it talks about don't shave the hair from the sides of your head, man, I'm literally butchering this whole chapter. That's why you see Orthodox Jews that have those ringlets. They take this literally. But the idea was in the Egyptian culture, you shave all of this, and it looks like a moon, sun, star. They worship celestial bodies. That was a way of worshiping these celestial bodies. When it says, don't eat meat with blood still in it, is there anything wrong with your steak being medium rare? The New Testament would say no. But in these days, the Egyptians would make their sacrifice, pour the blood back on it, and eat it. It was a way of consuming your God um, to the extreme. Two different materials was saying, hey, I'm going to take this culture, and I'm going to take God's culture, and I'm going to mix those things together. And Scripture's saying No. And even within the tattooing thing, it's not tattooing in the sense that we would think of today. There weren't local tattoo parlors. But in that time, 
You read through the Old Testament, pagans would cut themselves deeply because that got their God's attention. And as a reminder, they would take charcoal and smash that into their skin, and it would mark their skin for the dead or for their gods. And he's saying, look, that's not what we do. We are not part of that culture. And luckily, we have been given a new covenant, and we are under Christ because he has fulfilled it. The law and the prophets continue to show the need for Jesus because apart from him, it's impossible. Because here's what he says. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Apart from Christ, it's impossible. The people would have understood this. We, we see scribes and Pharisees today knowing the way that Jesus talked to them in the New Testament, and we go, yeah, don't want to be like those guys. But this is early ministry, man. There were a lot of people looking around at the scribes and Pharisees and going, no, those guys are holy, right? Those guys are, they know the word. Like, they're living it out. They're pious and all this stuff. And he goes, look, be a good person. Human righteousness will send you to hell. <laughs> and he's going to talk about that in a few weeks as well. Human righteousness has great intention. But the righteousness that he talks about is only through him fulfilling the law. And that's what we're to chase after. It's not me puffing myself up. It's me going, I am not good enough. But praise God, he sent his son, he fulfilled the law, became that sacrifice for me, and through him I can have new life. That's the righteousness that he's talking about. Our righteousness only succeeds that through him who fulfilled it. And so my question is this. Are we teaching obedience? For you and I, when I preach, is it pointing towards someone who has fulfilled all of this? At work or at home, can people see someone who has been made new by the one who fulfilled it? (coughs) Are we teaching his commands? Because in John 13, he says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And again, he commands us in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them. Are we teaching that obedience and salvation come through the one who's fulfilled it all? Because he has. He was the one who wrote about himself thousands of years before He was the one who fulfilled that. And he was the one who placed the ability in us to say that we can hunger and thirst for righteousness. But it only comes through him who's fulfilled it. So are we living that? Do people see that fulfillment in us? Because that's what we're called to do. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you for today. God, I'm thankful for your word and how it speaks and speaks and speaks and speaks and speaks. Thank you, Father, for sending your son to fulfill what we could not. Thank you for salvation being only through him. And God, if there's someone here today who's trying to do it through human righteousness, God, I pray you'd be all over them and show them it's only through Jesus Christ. It's only through turning away from our old self and following him that we can be made new. And he's fulfilled that way for us, God. God, I pray you would call people to yourself. And if that's you today, put that on a connect card. Talk to one of our pastors. You don't have to walk through life 
in the old, you can be made new. God, thank you for sending your son. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.